Nearly 80 people are killed in tribal fighting in Sudan's Blue Nile state. The violence triggers protests in several cities. So what's behind the escalating tension? Has Sudan's military takeover worsened relations between tribes? I'm Nastasia Tay, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests. In London, we have Khulur Khair. She is the founding director of Confluence Advisory. That's a think tank based in Khartoum. In Khartoum, we have Mohammed Alamin Ahmed. He's a Sudanese journalist covering conflict zones across the Horn of Africa. And in London is Gillian Lusk, a Sudan analyst and also the chairperson of the Society for the Study of the Sudans. A warm welcome to you all. Now, obviously, this is a very complex conflict within a very complex political situation, so there's plenty to pick apart here. Now, Gillian, I'm going to start with you because I know you've been working on Sudan and Blue Nile for many, many years now. So before we get to what's triggering this specific fighting at this specific point, can you remind us of the drivers of conflict that we've been seeing in the area for so long? Well, I wouldn't say that... um... Blue Nile has seen a lot of conflict recently. In fact, it was very calm until this broke out. But it's true that nationally, yes, there have been all kinds of conflicts, um, most of which uh, people I talk to generally link them to the government, that uh, the regime wants to stir them up. It suits the regime to have instability because it hasn't got a social and political base. Um, This is the military regime that took power in the coup last October. And um, therefore, it has to find some sort of um, both something to attract people. You know, people feel insecure, so they say, well, maybe we should turn to the military. But also because it distracts people from uh, protesting about the lack of democracy, calling for human rights and justice, peace, all the things of the revolution of 2019. Sure. Sorry, Gillian, I want to press you on the history of Blue Nile, though, and the drivers of conflict that we're we're seeing there. There have been land disputes, for instance. What have been, in your mind, the the big issues there? Um, I think the main issue at the moment is that the the Hausa people that you mentioned earlier uh, have been in Sudan for about a century. Um, As an ethnic group, they settled from West Africa in colonial times. And um, a lot of them went to work on pump schemes and agricultural schemes. But they were never given Sudanese nationality and they were never given land rights in the, um, in the traditional sense of what, what they call indigenous land rights in Sudan. So although they could own private land themselves, you know, somebody could buy a house or a garden or a farm, um, the tribe as such didn't have access to that. And this has been stirred up now as an issue. Some Hausa people have asked for um, land rights Mm. and um, somebody else is is stirring this up and um, making other ethnic groups, people from other ethnic groups, think that the Hausa have come to invade their land. And so obviously, given that the country is in a very poor state economically Mm -hmm. at the moment, people are hungry. Um, Of course. It's very easy to... Stir up conflict, therefore. Well, given that there are these conflicts and all this stirring up that's going on, I want to bring in Khulud here. There are obviously a number of different explanations for what's happening in Blue Nile at the moment and specifically the timing of it. Um, I'm curious because a lot of these dynamics also seem to be taking place away from the region, especially because a number of the groups who signed that 2020 peace agreement are viewed as having sided with the military in the current context. So 
Kulu, do you think that the Juba peace agreement has changed local politics on the ground in Blue Nile? Is this a case of Khartoum filtering down to the local level there? Well, undoubtedly, the Juba peace agreement has stirred up a lot of contestations. And this is because it wasn't signed by all the groups uh, for a start. It was only signed by the weaker, smaller groups um, who were attracted to the idea of getting their hands on a piece of the state, a piece of the pie, and a position in Khartoum, which has happened. And their support for the coup last year in October was in part because they wanted to assure these gains which they had made through the peace agreement. But what the peace agreement didn't do is two things. One, it didn't make peace between the groups that were fighting Khartoum. Mm. And two, the peace was made really between um, the heads of these armed groups and generals in Khartoum. It wasn't made anywhere near the local level. And so what you're seeing now is these new contestations opening up in order to assert their rights um, and, and what they, they want from the state, including from those who signed the peace agreement. Well, there are also these allegations that very powerful local leaders, say in Blue Nile, who are also wielding power in Khartoum, are stoking some of these tensions, perhaps even arming some of these local groups. Mohammed, what do you make of that? You know, this uh, traditional tension between uh, the farmers and, 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 and pastoralists or nomads in Sudan is, is something traditional and old. And uh, as well, the ethnic uh, tension in Sudan is something old that been inherited by uh, from the long civil wars in Sudan. But what is happening now is a kind of that the change of uh, the kind of uh, shaping the shaping the future of post-Bashir period uh, between a lot of political elites and uh, and among the the, 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 the the local leaders themselves, because you see that especially after the coup, there is a wide politicization of uh, these local leaders. So this is why the conflict is jumping from place to another. Uh, because of the competition over resources, the competition over the power, uh, the competition of, uh, of how to shape this future. What is happening in this time is not a normal cycle of tribal violence, the traditional tribal violence in Sudan. And as you see, it moved from Blue Nile to Kassala within three days. And today, there, there, there are uh, wide protests in, 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 in Khartoum as well. Yeah. And uh, the police have dispersed them, actually. This is a problem. And uh, I did talk uh, with protesters from the Hausa tribe in Kassala, for example. And they said that these protests have been penetrated by some agents from the security, from the old regime affiliators. So we know that the base of this uh, socioeconomic uh, problem in Sudan, the problems of the climate change, the problem of mm -hmm. displacement, the civil wars, all this is the background of the traditional conflict in Sudan. But what is happening after in the, in the, in the post-Bashir period is uh, the change of the balance of power have pushed all these groups, especially the elites of these groups, to uh, compete over resources and, 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 and the power. And with the hands of the former regime, with this mm -hmm. of, and of the security, and fueling this head of speech among the local communities, uh, that lived together for hundreds of years uh, for the indigenous uh, groups or for the groups who came to Sudan, like the Hausa, uh, in sure. a century ago. I, I, uh, they I have a kind in, of coexistence. Sure. I, I want to bring in Khulud here again, because we are talking about groups and existing tensions, but also multiple actors, all of whom have different agendas. Uh, Khulud, in your mind, are there individuals here who are stoking some of these tensions in these areas? It's such a chaotic um, sort of 
events at the moment, and it's developing very quickly. So it's very difficult to keep an, um, ahead of what are, you know, credible reports and what aren't. But what is clearly coming out is that there are certain groups from Khartoum, some have posed the idea that it's General Hemeti um, in the Sovereign Council, the Deputy Chairman of the Sovereign Council, who is uh, possibly supporting or arming some of the groups, possibly the Hausa in Blue Nile. There are also concerns that the head of the SPLMN Agar faction, Malik Agar, has played an integral role here in, in sort of stoking the violence, or at least bringing about the conditions for the violence, in the decisions that were made by his governor in Blue Nile State about the possibility of the Hausa having a native administration um, type um, representation, which is an informal tribal-based representation. Um, and that was denied to them. And this has been part and parcel of the um, sort of the, the root causes of this conflict, that the Hausa have not been given citizenship and they haven't been given a political stake. Do you have concerns that this conflict will, will broaden both in terms of area and actors here? I think that largely depends on whether the central government in Khartoum wants it to spread or not. Mm. I mean, I agree with what Mohamed El Amin said about the intervention of the government, and um, uh, also Khulud mentioned Himeti. Um, the issue of land tenure was supposed to be tackled in a national conference. Um, this is part of the Juba Peace Agreement of 2020, which everybody mentioned earlier. Um, was supposed to be tackled in a national conference. Um, and that the kind of issue of whether the Hausa, you know, where their land rights would, would begin and end um, would, of course, have been part of that. Uh, that didn't happen, um, partly because of delays over other things, but then latterly, of course, because of the coup. So the, the, the military now has no interest in settling this issue. And... Um, the question of where the weapons come from is indeed a very pertinent question, I think. I don't think it's likely to speak, you know, to, to spill over into Ethiopia as such, because this isn't a cross-border issue at all at this point. But of course, any tension near the border, given that there has mm. been tension between the two governments and over the question of the Nile waters, in particular the dam, um, that's always a possibility. It makes it even more sensitive than it was already. Well, part of the peace agreement that we're all talking about was also about integrating rebel forces into the army, and that obviously hasn't happened. We're talking about potentially arming different groups. It does seem that various groups across Sudan at the moment are on a bit of a, a recruitment drive to try to grow their own political power as we see this impasse continuing in Khartoum. Mohammed, do you think that's also potentially contributing to the violence that we're seeing? Uh, yes, actually, the, 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 the compromises that made in Sudan between the continuous compromises since 2019, uh, which this Juba Peace Agreement was one of them, actually, or one of these compromises. The main compromise was between uh, the military and civilians in general. Uh, so this has uh, created a kind of hybrid uh, government, which is actually owned or give the upper hand for the military. Also, that happened among the ripple movements who actually uh, divided between the civilians and, and the military. So this agreement is 
is, is has not actually addressed the root causes of the problems. It's actually take into consideration the the, the concerns of the elites about how to of, of sharing the power between the elites of the ripple movements and the coup leaders actually. I want to take a look back at Sudan's political upheaval over the past few years. Now, when longtime leader Omar al-Bashir was removed back in 2019, a three-year power-sharing agreement was established with Abdullah Hamdok as prime minister. He had served for just over a year when the military arrested him, seized power, and quashed protests against the takeover. He was reinstated after signing a controversial deal with the military. Now, since then, the military has expanded its powers, as we've been discussing. General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan was sworn in as the head of the ruling council, and protests against military rule have been held nearly every week since October. Well, a lot has obviously been made of this divide, this rural-urban divide, especially when it comes to Khartoum elites in Sudan. Uh, Khulud, how much support is there for these street protests that we've seen in Khartoum across the rest of the country? The street movement or the pro-democracy movement has been very good at tapping into the core concerns of people across the country. And oftentimes, you know, in very stark contrast to the authorities who haven't been able to do so. And so they have been able to maintain uh, to a large degree, as you say, weekly protests, sometimes more than once a week since October of last year. And for me, that longevity and that ability to sustain a protest indicates to me that there is a large amount of uh, support for the pro-democracy movement, particularly for the resistance committees that are leading the pro-democracy movement. Um, we we have seen, for example, the latest protests tap into this idea that we are all family, rather than the divisive politics that have been play playing out um, by the two top generals, General Burhan and General Hemeti, over their aid break, where we've seen General Burhan in River Nile State um, really speak to an Arab identity and, um, and sense of um, sort of power that is um, inherent in that. And then we've seen um, General Hemeti in Darfur sort of stoke up um, this idea of a center versus periphery, with the periphery finally having its time, um, presumably through him and the new political party that he's planning to set up. So this divisive politics at the top, which we've already been watching as a sign that there is um, the, the two generals that are ill at ease with each other, despite their immediate interests, it looks to be burgeoning into a much broader issue. And pro-democracy movements are particularly um, sort of aware of this, and they have been trying to rally a sense of unity. But of mm. course, with so much violence taking place right now, it's going to be quite difficult for them to to achieve that, as Mohammed said, without key changes at the top, without their generals being removed. Uh, Gillian, I'm curious about what you see as a potential path forward, because the talks, there were talks brokered by the US and Saudi Arabia. They've stopped. There was a, a movement by the UN EGAD and the African Union, a process there that seems to have also stalled. Um, how do you try to negotiate a way forward when the revolutionary councils, who are the people who are running the protests, and there's obviously a division within the pro-democracy side, when the revolutionary councils don't actually want to come to the table at all? I th one thing that strikes me very much at the moment is that uh, many people on the outside um, non-Sudanese are talking very much as if this was just a military government and therefore a deal can be done with it. But Sudanese that I talk to are mostly, one of the first things they say is that this is the old regime that's come back, the old Islamist regime of Omar al-Bashir, of the National Congress Party, that it's um, very well organized, very well funded, very determined. This is not just a few 
angry men. This is a you know structured organization and it's infiltrated its its people back into the civil service and obviously into the military to the extent that they ever left this is because many of them were just there throughout the whole thing um, throughout the revolution. And um, rev young revolutionaries who've done an absolutely amazing job with this peaceful revolution in Sudan. I mean, the world should learn from it, it really should. Um, but they haven't, they're not used to those kind of politics at institutional level. And uh, the revolutionary committees, which have indeed done a marvelous job setting up committees all over the country and so on. Um, you know, they're, they're not really equipped to deal with this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult to see who, who, who can, because it's not just a question of the military saying, oh, okay, yes, we'll have democracy. And um, General Bohan in his last big speech called for elections, but it's clear that they have every intention of controlling those elections. Uh, and then they will present this mm -hmm. as a popular government if, if that goes ahead. So I want it's to, not sorry, clear that... I do want to bring in Mohammed here because he's on the ground in Khartoum yeah. and, and living with all of these forces, as well as the day-to-day -day economic hardships that have also been exacerbated by the Ukraine war. And obviously this is all building towards some kind of breaking point, but no one's really sure which way it'll go. So, Mohammed, can you describe what the situation is like in Khartoum at the moment for you now, day-to-day, -day, in terms of of being able to access basic necessities? What happened of the economic hardship in Sudan uh, since uh, October 2021 is unprecedented, actually. We know uh, the Sudanese are suffering from the uh, economic hardship uh, since 2019 and earlier, but uh, over this last year, until now, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's unbelievable, really, of how the, 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 the situation is very hard. Uh, the prices are uh, soaring uh, too much in, in, in local uh, markets. Uh, you know, the, there are the problems of the 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 the, the, the queues for the uh, for the fuel and uh, bread, etc. Uh, uh, so, and 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 you see now the 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 the, the coup government actually has uh, failed to provide the basic uh, necessities for the people. Uh, the prices are like doubling many times. Uh, the currency has been floated, but it's also increased day after day, and the, uh, I mean the, uh, it's mm -hmm. uh, uh, declining day after day in front of the uh, U.S. dollar. So the the, the 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 security even in Khartoum, I mean the personal security for everybody is really uh, uh, something difficult. And, and, and you know what happening in the peripheries as well uh, of the country is also affecting on, 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 on the capital Khartoum because, you know, most of the consumers in Sudan are in, I mean, the consumers of the vegetable and, and mm -hmm. whatever of uh, food uh, needs is, is in uh, the peripheries of the country and the consumers are in Khartoum. So this is also uh, affected on the prices, affected on the food security in, in Sudan. And as you may know that uh, the World Food Programme said that uh, 18 million, like 30, uh, 40 percent, uh, percent of the population is in risk of uh, acute hunger in the country. Uh, so, and the, all this with the with the, with the reflection mm -hmm. of the international food crisis, it's also uh, impacting the country too much. So, obviously, a, uh, a very dire and, situation. You know, and and the, I do want to. The, so, I'm sorry. I do really exactly want to look at how this the, is playing out outside Khartoum as well, uh, Khulud. 
We've seen violence escalate also in other parts of the country. We've been talking about a potential, well, a, a realistic governance vacuum that we've seen over the course of the last couple of years. If the violence that we're seeing is being driven not only by economic hardship, but also by shifting alliances within Khartoum, given the trajectory of the country, either way, should we be expecting more violence like this in other parts of the country? Unfortunately, yes. It seems like there is this regime that we have right now, which, as Gillian has said, is a, a sort of a, a reiteration of uh, Bashir's Islamo-military regime, is not really interested in governing. Uh, we've seen that in their inability to be able to plan for um, some of the economic crises and then to mitigate some of these um, security crises. Um, what their chief interest seems to be is surviving and remaining in place. So with that governance vacuum in place, it seems that it's going to be ethnic tensions and um, land grabs and um, sort of storing up uh, resources and accessing resources in order to create war chests for any upcoming confrontations. That seems to be um, sort of the state of play. Um, and what that means, of course, is that we are very quickly um, hurtling towards a very militarized response to these crises that we're seeing, including the climate crisis and the economic crises, rather than what we saw during the transitional period, which is uh, sort of uh, using politics to, um, to solve some of these issues rather than picking up guns. What we've seen with the, the, the way that the Juba Peace Agreement has brought in these rebel leaders into Khartoum and taking them away from their constituencies, and in many ways those constituents now feel that they've been neglected mm. by these very leaders, that's going to avail the space um, for new rebel leaders to pop mm -hmm. up um, who will say to these constituents, you know, I will now represent you. And we're going to see far more interfaces of conflict across uh, these peripheral regions. A grim outlook indeed. Well, thank you to all of our guests, Khouloud Khair, Mohamed Alamin, and Gillian Lask. Well, that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin Ung, Usama Aloni, Fungi Nguyen, and Gordon Robinson. Studio sound was by Suraj Shankar, and the program was edited by Anil Anandan, Lin Yuan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again on Wednesday.